Good morning, Middle Church. What I want to talk to you about today is what this transformed city, the New Jerusalem, means to me. What does it mean to live our lives knowing that God lives with us, that God is our neighbor, our friend, our family, ourselves, that God is the stranger, too, that God especially is the stranger? Here in the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem as I, as we here at Middle envision it, there are no strangers. And because I'm a writer, uh, for me, what makes people not be strangers is knowing their stories, reading their stories, hearing their stories. Their stories help me feel my way into their lives, and my stories, I hope, help them feel their way into mine. In this new Jerusalem, everyone hears, really hears each other's stories. And everyone knows that if they tell their authentic story, they will be heard. Here is mine. My grandmother, my Chinese-American grandmother, Charlotte Wong Liu, or Charlotte Chum Liu, or Liu Chum, or just Chum, or just Liu, depending on which documents you were looking at, was one of the most talkative, straightest talking, strongest women, woman I've ever known. I loved her so very much. I was also sometimes afraid of her. If she had an opinion about something, you knew it. I knew that when I was, got accepted into Yale that Harvard was a good school, and why hadn't I gotten in? <laughs> I knew that I, when I gained the freshman 15 that I'd gotten fat, but that was good because I was too skinny before. <laughs> I knew that I ever, if I ever went into the restaurant business that I should put the white people in the seats by the windows so that the tongs, the Chinese Cosa Nostra, wouldn't shoot the windows out. And I knew when I started reading Asian American literature on my own, because it wasn't in the curriculum, and asked her about the first Chinese American poets who wrote and published their Songs of Gold Mountain from the mid-19th century onward, that we were too busy doing laundry to write poetry, a slap on the wrist of the college-educated know-it-all, if I ever heard one. In case it's not clear, my grandmother was a force of nature. She was beautiful, smart, and elegant, and she never pulled a verbal punch. But I knew from the way she looked at me whenever I had something true to say, a look that was calm and attentive, her usually sharp black eyes suffused with love, that she was absorbing every word. My grandmother was nothing if not a talker, so it was a shock when my brother and I, in high school ourselves, discovered her high school yearbook. In those days, under the photo and name of each graduate was a motto. Under my grandmother's photo and name were these words, silence is golden. Silence is golden? My brother Kenny started to laugh. You've got to be kidding, Grandma, he said. <laughs> silent? When were you ever silent? 
She paused. Her solemn look meant she was weighing her words before she spoke them. It was the look she got whenever she wasn't sure if we were old enough to hear what she was about to say. Finally, she said, you never told white people what you were really thinking. My half-white brother and I, stunned into silence ourselves, didn't ask her, couldn't ask her why. I had to learn for myself again by reading and researching the stories that hadn't made it into our high school history books that my grandmother had reasons for her self-protective golden silence. The reasons began before she was born. Her grandfather, who had helped to build the northern branch of the Transcontinental Railroad, had had to flee with his second wife to the East Coast, to Baltimore, where they eventually ended up, to escape anti-Chinese violence. They could have been killed, as many were. They could have seen their house and their neighbors' houses or whole neighborhood torched to the ground, as happened in Tacoma, Washington. They could have been rounded up, and though they were US citizens by then, with the authentic papers to prove it, they could have been marched by the hundreds onto a ship and deported against their will to China, as happened in Seattle. My Chinese-American family and I bear the intergenerational memory, which is to say we bear the memory written in our flesh that the Americans wanted us dead or forcibly gone. There are other reasons for the silence. My grandmother's husband, my grandfather, like so many others, illegally immigrated from China as a paper son. False citizenship papers were one of the only ways to circumvent the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Asian Exclusion Act, which were more or less in effect until 1965. He eventually lived a public life as the debonair owner of the successful Freeman Chum's Chinese restaurant on Lexington Avenue, a restaurant visited by Marilyn Monroe, among other stars. But my grandfather also was the man who could not go to the hospital where his younger brother lay dying because they didn't have the same family name and as an illegal alien, an excluded stranger in this land, he faced arrest and deportation. These are the people I am from. Their story is one strand in the story of Chinese America, one strand in the story of Asian America, which is one strand in the story that is all of us. Be a part of the breaking of the golden silence. Let's work together to make the new Jerusalem buildings, affordable housing to live in, not walls to keep people out. The new Jerusalem is made of stories, one brick, one story at a time. Listen to the stories, deeply listen, then tell yours. Hello, middle. Uh, <laughs> Reverend Jackie and Reverend Bertram uh, asked us to reflect on this text, the way that we see love transforms showing up in our lives 
and what it means to have what is old pass away. And my response was very different at the beginning of this week than it is at the end of this week. This week started with Mother's Day. Can, does it feel like it's been more than a week? <laughs> like weeks and weeks. Um, and continued to move through this weather that has me worried about and in awe of Mother Earth that ended with men in their rich man's house. claiming jurisdiction on women's bodies and their mental and physical health. So I'm thinking about women. And through my eyes, I'm having a hard time imagining what's next. So we're going to time travel. We're going to go back <laughs> to when everything was great a week ago, uh, to Mother's Day, when I went to my son's daycare, and he drew me wearing a crown. I didn't point out to the other moms that I was the only one that was wearing a crown in my... <laughs> but I wanted to make sure that you all knew. <laughs> and, and I felt like a queen. I thought about how lucky I am to be in this place in this time. I come from a grandmother on my mother's side, Banumadi Valyadan, born in the matriarchal society of Kerala, India, who refused an arranged marriage. And she fell in love, and she moved to Malaysia, and then she became the auntie who everybody would go to when they fell in love, <laughs> and they needed somebody to convince their parents that they needed to <laughs> be in a love marriage. I come from a grandmother on my father's side, Delane Buchholz, whose family survived the Great Depression by converting their brick factory into a mushroom growing factory, and she won't touch a mushroom to this day. She worked during World War II and continued to work for most of her life and is one of the funniest people I know at 94 years old. Despite being raised a strict Missouri Senate Lutheran who said that when she was growing up in Chicago, if you, cro you crossed the street if you saw a Catholic friend walking on your side. And despite her husband, my grandfather's protestations, she embraced my Hindu mother when my father and my mother met and married. I come from my mother, Shanti Pillay, who worked in parliament in the capital city of Malaysia and speaks four languages fluently and met my dad when he was in the Peace Corps. They fell in love and she moved to Eagle River, Wisconsin, a town where the population almost matches the number of days of winter annually. <laughs> and she went to work as a receptionist in the town nursing home. I think she had children just to increase the diversity of all the all-white towns that she lived in. <laughs> she and my father have dedicated their lives to the service of the communities they have been in. Through creating feeding programs, she worked as a teacher's aide, and they're currently planning their summer camp that they run for about 60 kids across our county. Mine is not a bootstrap story. Mine is the story of the women who could see a new heaven and a new earth just over the horizon and they got there by choosing love. It is because of them that I'm standing here today. What a privilege. They showed me the way that God shows up in the way that we love one another, and that a world, a society, a culture that seeks to stand in the way of that love is too small and should be cast aside. It is because of them that I wear a crown. It is because of them that despite legislators across this great country working to strip women of their right to decide what can be done to their bodies, I know that they can never take away our ability to choose love. 
I can and I must choose love by voting, by helping others to vote. I can and I must choose love by making sure all people are counted in the census. I can and I must choose love by raising my children in a queer, multi-generational, multi-racial community that does not center whiteness, maleness, or heterosexuality. By making sure that my son knows that God's love is manifest in how he loves, not in how he can control and oppress. I can and must turn my rage and complicity into action and creation. I can and I must choose love by coming to this place and finding out where and how I can plug into the great work of this congregation. I choose love by remembering that God is here, in this place, loving me, mothering me, putting my feet on a path, and setting my eyes on a horizon. I am scared. I think my grandmothers and my mother were scared too. But we see a new heaven and a new earth, and we can and we must hold each other's hands, adjust each other's crowns, and get there together. Thank you, Middle. Hi, I'm James Wu, and I'm very thirsty. I want to talk to you this morning about language and linguistics. I can feel some of you roll your eyes at me already. I can't see it, but I can feel it, my family included. But please bear with me. My family immigrated from Taiwan in the late 70s. Chinese is my first language, but not my primary language. If you have to ask, it's English. Um, I'm a Taiwanese American. Now, if the idea of being ethnically Chinese, but not identifying as Chinese, confuses you. Just understand that there has been a Chinese diaspora for the past several hundred years, and Chinese people are everywhere. That's why you can find Chinese food in Tallahassee, in Torino, in Trinidad and Tobago. You all know how to say, how are you in Chinese, right? Niaoma, that's right. Everybody knows a little bit of Chinese, right? But ni hao ma translates directly into are you well? And I want to teach you two other ways of saying hello, how are you? Okay, the first is ni zi fan ma. Not bad, okay? And the second is ni zi bao le ma. Very good, okay? These two phrases are really just conjugations of the same idea. Ni ma translates directly into have you eaten rice? <laughs> or, or have you eaten, okay? Because eating rice is synonymous with eating food, right? Ni ma translates directly into have you eaten fully? Or have you eaten, right? Uh, because Semantically, if you came upon a friend at, say, 11 a.m., you would say, have you eaten because it's early and he may not have had brunch yet, right? And if you came upon a friend at, say, 1 p.m., you would say, are you full because they probably have eaten already, okay? And you say this in lieu of saying hello. So you came upon a person and that's what you said, okay? It is, in fact, an old-fashioned country way of saying things, of saying hello, 
And it's kind of weird, really, when you think about it, right? On the corner of 2nd Avenue and 7th Street, you might hear, hey, what's up? But in my parents' house, it was, Yes, halfway around the world, and country folks still have their own way of saying things. Language reflects culture and its people. Uh, culture gives birth to language. In the last 3,000 years, China has had a very long history of mass starvation. From 1810 to 1960, it's estimated that about 160 million people died from famine in China. 1810 was as far back as Wikipedia could go. After a millennium, and seem like the right thing to say instead of how are you or are you well. But is slowly becoming an archaic term. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone under the age of 50 saying it. Old people from the old country are the only ones that ever use it. And scholars point to one major reason as to why. It's passé. Simply, starvation is now a thing of the past in China. And it's funny how language is born and then it dies. I'm going to go off script, but it's just remarkable how something so awful can actually disappear from the language simply because the problem is gone from its existence. Right? And we live in difficult times now. There is now a different kind of starvation, a famine of decency and goodwill towards people. But you and I are the people of God. We are commissioned to be the new Jerusalem. We are what it means to love and to be loved. And between us and our allies, we are meant to see the death of certain language. Imagine, if you will, the end of such words as race and poverty and inequality. And imagine giving birth to new language such as social justice and whatever else we choose to imagine. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Imagine what language you can create tomorrow. Amen. So in the Jewish community, we have a scripture reading cycle that breaks the Torah, the first five books of Moses, into 52 sections, one section every week. And the passage that Reverend Johnson read is from this week's Torah portion called Bahar. And you heard, proclaim liberty throughout the land for all its inhabitants. This is probably a very familiar passage to you, even if you don't go to church, because it is inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. But I first learned about the importance of liberty from my Korean mother, because she was born into occupation. My mother was born in 1942 in Japan during the Japanese occupation of Korea, which began three decades before. Her parents had to give her a Japanese name, Yukiko, 
because she was not allowed a Korean name. Her Korean mother, which is my grandmother, was forcibly taken from Korea, kidnapped to Japan at the age of five, along with hundreds of thousands of other Koreans over many years, some artisans and intellectuals who were taken to enhance Japanese culture and education, and some who were women and girls used as comfort women, the euphemism for sex slaves. Now, my grandmother was one of the fortunate ones. Her parents were academics, and she was young, so she learned Japanese easily, which was important because the speaking of Korean was forbidden in Japan. Now, my Korean grandmother lived in Korea. I'm sorry, my grandfather, my Korean grandfather lived in Korea at the time, and he was part of the resistance movement to free Korea from Japanese occupation. He helped organize and march in demonstrations, which over the years had an estimated two million Koreans participating. Japan violently suppressed these protests, killing an estimated 50,000 people in their desire to keep control. My guess is that most of you don't even know this story at all. But their desire for liberty was so strong, they didn't stop. And he was a message runner. He ran messages back and forth between Korea and Japan to Korean nationalists who live there. And this is eventually how he met my grandmother. She ran a boarding house, and she was also an excellent cook. And the lore is that he fell in love with her cooking first. <laughs> Now, even after they got married, he was still running messages back and forth from Japan to Korea and Korea to Japan. And every time he was in Japan, it seemed that my grandmother would get pregnant with another child. <laughs> my mother was the fourth of nine. So the end of World War II brought the end of Japanese occupation of Korea. And my mother, who was only five years old at the time, was finally free. Her mother renamed her Solja, giving her a Korean name, which means Snow Queen. And she tells the story of how my grandmother, who had become a very successful businesswoman in Japan, sold everything that they had To prepare for the move, they strapped a belt with money on it on each of the children in case they should get separated on their journey back home. Well, they all made the trip safely, finally free in their own homeland. But my mother said this liberty was not exactly what she expected. That Japanese money after the war, well, it was worth less than kindling for fire. And they left Japan comfortable to come back to Korea destitute. She told stories of how Korean neighbors, including family, rejected her mother because she spoke Korean with a Japanese accent. She was seen as a foreigner in her own native land. My mom told stories of begging for rice from her uncle, who allowed her only to lick the leftover rice off the paddle. They were desperately in debt very quickly. And while they were finally free from Japan, they did not feel liberated. It was my Korean mother who taught me that liberty is not just about being free from under someone else's occupation, it is about some basic measure of economic independence. It was my father's Jewish texts who provided an ancient framework for how we might solve this problem. You see, the Bible also understood this fundamental truth that some basic economic viability is deeply tied to freedom. 
But could the Bible have possibly imagined what the global economy looks like today? Oxfam recently did a study and found that income disparity has grown so much in the last generation that the 85 richest individuals in the world have as much wealth as the bottom 3.5 billion people. That is like having like this half of the room having as much money as half of the world. Now, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That expression you might think was written for this time, but unfortunately it was actually a quote from over 180 years ago by William Harrison. But actually in some ways it's a quote that we know all the way back from the Bible. And it was accounted for by our Bible 2,500 years ago. There was this deep understanding in ancient times that income inequality was going to continue to grow and grow if it was unchecked. And so the Bible sought to regulate it. It's not that the Torah was promoting socialism, exactly, and it's not like there weren't some hierarchies in biblical times. Not everyone got to be the king, and not everyone got to be a priest. But there was no class system in ancient Israel, which is unusual for ancient cultures. There was no sense that you should be born in one place and only stay there. The Bible had a foundational belief that all people were created equal and that a primary basis for that freedom uh, oh, and deserving of fundamental liberties and the primary basis for that freedom was a measure of economic independence. So that ideal, the economic ideal, was voiced by the prophet Micah who aspired to a time when every person would sit under their own vine and fig tree. Think about that. If you want every person to have their own vine and fig tree. It means they have to have a little piece of land to have that fig tree on. And in order to reap the harvest of your vine, it takes years for a vine to produce fruit. So it means you have to have some stability in some space that becomes a home. But the reality was that even in biblical times, this didn't always happen. The rich would get richer and the poor would get poorer. And eventually, this growing disparity, people would become so impoverished, they would become enslaved by debt, sometimes selling themselves or their children into slavery. Yes, as you know, there was slavery in biblical times. And families would also be forced to sell their ancestral land out of desperation. They lost their vine and their fig tree. They lost their liberty. The result was, over time, a small number of people would become substantial, huge landowners with great wealth, and the rest of majority of society would become landless, impoverished, even enslaved. This was written 2,500 years ago, but doesn't this sound familiar? Now you might be thinking, but we don't actually have slavery today, but think again. There are record numbers of Americans who are in massive debt over a third of them do not think they will ever be able to get out of debt in their entire lifetime. That's an enslavement. 40% of the people in our New York jails, we should be so um, ashamed of this, are people who have not been convicted yet of a crime. They are incarcerated because they can't afford the cash bail required to stay out. Now, the vast majority of people incarcerated on Rikers Island 
are overwhelmingly people of color there for nonviolent, low-level offenses, there because they can't make a cash bail often less than $500. They have lost their liberty for being poor. We don't think we have actual slavery, but last year I spoke at a rally to help change New York's despicable child sex trafficking laws, which protects traffickers and not our children. We did win that legislation, thank God. But I still feel chilled thinking about a story I heard from one of the survivor's mothers. Her 12-year-old daughter was approached at school by a fellow classmate whose mother was so financially desperate she had sold her daughter into the sex trade and she had sent her back to school to coerce other girls to do the same. Hundreds of thousands of our children in America are sold into the sex trade. Hundreds of thousands. It is the second fastest growing crime in our country. Vast income inequality and its devastating consequences, they're not just ancient issues, they're very much alive today, and they are not, as you know, just economic issues. They are moral and ethical issues for us. And the Bible was concerned not just with making sure that people were free from oppression, but they would not fall into such financial straits that it would literally or figuratively enslave them that every person had a fundamental right to the liberty and dignity of having our basic needs met. And in a country this rich, we should be able to do that. I'm gonna go back to the landlord's house and take back what was meant for me. <laughs> so this was the groundbreaking idea of ancient civilization, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And the way that our Torah decided to make this happen, that we read about, that we just heard about, the Jubilee year, this is some radical Torah. Because it knew in the Bible 2,500 years ago that people wouldn't just let this happen or make it happen. They would have to actually make it happen in some active way because people don't want to give up the money that they've earned or they feel like is theirs. So there were some extreme measures. There was a way for the system to account for the fact that some people would have a bad crop year or unemployment or misfortune of some kind or maybe even some bad choices or bad luck. So here is the kind of radical Torah for redistribution and debt amnesty that is found in this week's Torah portion. First, the Torah describes this week a sabbatical year, which comes every seven years, where you're supposed to leave the land fallow and not till it and tend it, just eat what grows naturally. But also it says that debts need to be forgiven. Every seven years, like you relieve those debts, you get a clean slate. And every Hebrew slave is supposed to be freed every seven years. In the Jubilee year, which is every 50 years, the land that someone has sold out of desperation reverts back to its original owner, getting back to the aspiration that every person gets to sit under their own vine and fig tree. Now to our Western capitalist mindset, this is wildly countercultural. How can we give land back to somebody? How do we just forgive debts? Someone accumulated them, isn't it their fault? They enslaved themselves, that's the way we think. 
But here are a couple of important principles found in our, in our Bible that reminds us some important truths. One, that land, it's not yours to begin with. <laughs> that land belongs to God. In this week's Torah portion, it says, since the land is mine, no land shall be sold permanently. You're all foreigners and resident aliens as far as I'm concerned. Live with that. Now, secondly, no one shall be enslaved because fundamentally our only servitude is to God. As it says in this week's portion, because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must never be sold as slaves. This is truth too. Now it's humbling to imagine all the land and wealth that you've worked really, really hard for Remember, it's not really yours. And that no person can enslave another, whether in body or even in debt. We're all entitled to some fundamental right for that liberty. Our Bible understands that in order to have this kind of freedom, we have to have some economic independence. That's absolutely required. This is a truth that was proclaimed by our common shared text in our faith but it was also a truth that I really learned from my mother. And what makes me realize is this is a universal human need and desire and right that crosses all religions and all cultures and even all generations for all time. Now my mother's family story thankfully ended well because finally a kind neighbor gave my grandmother a small loan. She gave her a second chance and so my grandmother started selling a few books out of her backyard, and then she opened a bookstore, and then my mother worked in that bookstore, which gave her a great love of reading and books, which led her to be the first person in her family to graduate from university. And there she studied English literature, which gave her a love for English and America, which led her to meet my father, who came to Korea as a civil engineer on ROTC. And there in Korea, my sister and I were both born, but it wasn't very easy to be a mixed race family in Korea at the time. So we moved to Tacoma, Washington, my father's hometown, so that we could have a Jewish community and a life. You know, it's your run of the mill, how I became a rabbi story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, maybe it's not so typical, but it shares a foundation from all of our universal human stories that we've all had in our families, of misfortune and pain, of good luck, of second chances, kind neighbors, and of course, hopes always for a better future for the next generation. We can't control all that oppresses us or enslaves us or our neighbors, but we can decide how we want to respond to them we can try to level the scales a little bit. And our text would tell us we need to be a little bit radical about that. We can help restore freedom and dignity and liberty to all the inhabitants of the land. So people get ready, because this is what our faith calls us to do, and it's not easy. So let's get on board to proclaim liberty in the land for all its inhabitants. 
I want to end by singing because that's sort of the way that I can kind of express myself best, I think. And I know that you're going to sing along with me, right? So. Should I sing off of the other microphone or should I just stay on this? People get ready. There's a train coming. Don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the deep. Thank you. Thank you.